Part One of George Friedrich Handel by Herbert F. Pieser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some wit comparing Bach and Handel remarked that both masters were born in the same year and killed by the same doctor. Born in the same year, they unquestionably were Handel almost an exact month before his great contemporary. Hall, where Handel first saw the light, is a comparatively short distance from Eisenach, where Bach was cradled. It lies not far from the eastern boundary of that Saxon-Thuringian country, which harbored some of the imposing musical figures of Germany during the seventeenth century. Such names as those of the famous three S's, Schein, Scheidt, and Schultz, of Kunau, Krieger, Melchior, Frank, Ahl, Rosenmüller, echo powerfully through the history of that period. George Friedrich Handel was born on Monday, February 23, 1685. That the name has been variously spelled need not trouble us. Strict consistency in such matters lay as lightly on folks of this epoch as it did in the age of Mozart. However, it may be pointed out that in this booklet Friedrich is retained in place of Frederick, because Handel himself repeatedly used this form, and because the British authorities thus inscribed him when he became a British citizen. The Handel family came from Silesia, where Valentine Handel, the composer's grandfather, had been a coppersmith in Breslau. George Handel, the father, had been barber-surgeon attached to the service of Saxon and Swedish armies, then to that of Duke Augustus of Saxony. For a time he prospered, and in 1665 he bought himself Am Schlamm at Halle an der Zala, a palatial house which in the course of years barely escaped total destruction by fire. In any case, Father Handel was to know the ups and downs of fortune, and the vicissitudes he endured did not sweeten an always morose and surly character. He has been described as a strong man, a man of vast principles, bigoted, intensely disagreeable, a man with a rather withered heart. A portrait of him gave Romain Roland the impression of one who has never smiled, he was twice married, the first time to the widow of a barber, a woman ten years his senior, the second to Dorothea Taust, a pastor's daughter, thirty years his junior. By the first he had six children, by the second four, of whom George Friedrich was the second. Father Handel was sixty-three when his great son came into the world. The future composer of Messiah was born not in the elaborate edifice which carries his bust and is inscribed with the titles of his oratorios, but in the house adjoining it, which stands on a street corner, and whose official address is Nikolaistrasse V. Yet even this statement must be qualified, for this presumable birthplace was not built till 1800, and according to the researches of Newman Flower, stands on the site of the house in which Handel was born. As for the town of Halle, it had definitely passed, after the death of the Duke Augustus of Saxony, to Brandenburg, so that, strictly speaking, Handel was born a Prussian. But as Roland has noted, the childhood of Handel was influenced by two intellectual forces, the Saxon and the Prussian. Of the two, the more aristocratic and also more powerful was the Saxon. At all events, after the Thirty Years' War, the city of Halle during the Middle Ages, 
a center of culture and gaiety, had fallen into a drab provincialism. Apparently the child's musical susceptibilities developed early, and rather like Mozart's, even if unlike the latter, he had not the benefit of a friendly and understanding father. Who has not seen at some time or other the picture immortalizing the precocity of the infant Handel? The story goes that the indulgent mother had smuggled a clavichord into the garret. In the dead of night the child crept to the attic till the father, aroused by faint tinklings, came with a lantern to investigate. Whether or not the clavichord was confiscated, the result of the parental raid was a stern prohibition of all sorts of music-making. Some of us may be reminded by this apparent heartlessness of a rather similar punishment visited on the youthful Bach when his elder brother deprived him of music he had painfully copied out by moonlight for his own use. The elder Handel's motive was, according to his own lights, perhaps quite as defensible. He had no wish to see a son of his degraded to the rank of a lackey, or some form of a vagabond, than which a musician at that time hardly seemed any better. The barber-surgeon fully shared the prejudice of the average strongman against the artist, Roland describes the bourgeois middle-class German attitude of the seventeenth century on the subject of music. It was for them a mere art of amusement, and not a serious profession. Many of the masters of that time, Schultz, Kuhnau, Rosenmüller, were lawyers or theologians before they devoted themselves to music. And old George Handel is supposed to have threatened, if that boy ever shows any further inclination towards music or noises disguised as such, I will kill it. There was indeed one way in which the boy could, with a certain impunity, satisfy his craving for music, in church, by listening to the organ and the singing of the choir. Such enjoyment supplanted to some extent the games and childish pleasures of ordinary boys. He was, it appears, a somewhat lonely child, who made few friends, and whose playground was a dismal courtyard opposite his home. The father settled on the law as a fine, honest, and lucrative profession for his son. Jurisprudence was to rescue Handel from the snares of music, just as in time it was to be the salvation of Schumann, as schoolmastering was by paternal decree to be the destiny of Schubert, and medicine that of Berlioz. Here, too, it was quite as ineffectual. All the same, the youth was not to escape his share of legal study, and by the time he reached sixteen he entered the University of Halle as Studiosus Juris. About eight years earlier, however, fate in the paradoxical shape of Father Handel himself took a hand in George Friedrich's future. He had his son accompany him on a journey to nearby Weisenfels, the residence of the Duke of Saxony. That personage asked the lad to play something on the chapel organ, and was so stirred by what he heard that he counseled the obdurate father not to thwart the child's ambition. From an ordinary person the hard-boiled parent would have taken such advice in very bad part. Coming from the mouth of a prince, it acquired the force of a command so he decided to allow his son to study music, with the unspoken reservation, however, that he must belong first and foremost to the law. 
Actually, these musical studies might be said to have begun in Weisenfels, for here young Handel had a chance to hear some of the works of the Nuremberg master, Johann Krieger. And in this same town, a mere stone's throw from Halle, he had his first taste of opera, which was to thrust deep roots in his soul. The boy was now entrusted to the care of Friedrich Wilhelm Zakau from Leipzig, who at an early age had become organist of the Halle Liebfraukirche. Zakau appears to have been an uncommonly gifted teacher, and Handel's devotion to him never wavered. As we read Romain Roland's words, we are strangely reminded of the ideals and methods of Theodor Weinlich, Wagner's unique master of composition. Zakau's first efforts were devoted to giving the pupil a strong foundation in harmony. Then he turned his thoughts towards the inventive side of the art, he showed him how to give his musical ideas the most perfect form, and he refined his taste. He possessed a remarkable library of Italian and German music, and he explained to Handel the various methods of writing and composing adopted by different nationalities, whilst pointing out the good qualities and faults of each composer, and in order that his education might be at the same time theoretical and practical, he frequently gave him exercises to work in such and such a style. Thus the little Handel had, thanks to his master, a living summary of the musical resources of Germany, old and new, and under his direction he absorbed all the secrets of the great contrapuntal architects of the past, together with the clear, expressive, and melodic beauty of the Italian-German schools of Hanover and Hamburg. Around 1696, George Friedrich is supposed to have gone to Berlin, though about this and possibly a subsequent trip a short time afterwards the chronicles give no clear account. Father Handel was seriously ill, and as it is unlikely that the eleven-year-old student went to the court of the elector of Brandenburg alone, the assumption is that he made the journey in Zakow's company. Be this as it may, the artistic enthusiasm of the electress, Sophia Charlotte, stimulated musical activities at the electoral court and attracted thither outstanding Italian composers, instrumentalists, and singers. And it may well have been here that the youth was first brought into contact with the music of the South. He played on the clavecin before a princely audience and stirred it to such enthusiasm that the elector wished to take him into service or at least finance a trip to Italy to complete his studies. But if we are to believe Meinwaring, Father Handel did not wish his son tied too soon to a prince. Furthermore, the old man's health failed so alarmingly that he knew his days were numbered and wished to see the boy once more before he died. Hardly was George Friedrich back in Halle when the barber surgeon went to his account. The youth wrote a memorial poem which was published in a pamphlet and proved to be the first time his name ever appeared in print. After settling her husband's affairs, Dorothea Handel went about carrying out his wishes regarding her son's legal studies. In a spirit of duty, he continued them a while, but soon after his completion of his college classes and his entrance for the Faculty of Law at the Halle University, music gained the upper hand completely. 
He was religious without sentimentality, but as little as the youthful Bach did he have any sympathy with pietism, of which the faculty of theology was a hotbed at the time, and was violently opposed to the pietist antagonism to music. And when the post of organist at the cathedral by the Moritzburg fell vacant by reason of the dissolute habits of a roistering individual named Leperin, Handel was made his successor, though the church was Calvinist and the young newcomer a staunch Lutheran. There was now an end to all thoughts of jurisprudence. Music claimed him solely. Handel was only seventeen, but seems already to have exercised a strong musical authority in Halle. He assembled a capital choir and orchestra from among his most gifted pupils, and let them be heard on Sundays in various churches of the town. Like Bach and other masters of that astonishing period, he composed an incredible number of cantatas, motets, psalms, chorales, and devotional miscellany, which had to be new every week. It must not be imagined that he allowed them to wilt or evaporate. Hindle's mind was a storehouse whence nothing ever escaped, and in which was always stocked away and held in reserve for future use. In the summer of 1703 he left his native city, not indeed forever, but only for occasional visits to relatives and friends, when professional business allowed him time. From Halle he turned his steps toward Hamburg, which had suffered little from the wars of the 17th century, and grown rich, gay, and artistic in consequence of enviable business prosperity. Commercial benefits were, of course, reflected in a musical expansion, which raised the Hanseatic port above the level even of Berlin, and made it the operatic city of the north. In Hamburg, notes Roland, they spoke all languages and especially the French tongue. It was in continual relationship with both England and Italy, and particularly with Venice, which constituted for it a model for emulation. It was by way of Hamburg that the English ideas were circulated in Germany. In the time of Handel, Hamburg shared with Leipzig the intellectual prestige of Germany. There was no other place in Germany where music was held in such high esteem. The artists there hobnobbed with the rich merchants. The Hamburg opera catered to various factions which did not invariably see eye to eye. One of these factions consisted of persons who sought in operatic entertainment out-and-out -out amusement, the other of individuals with a religious bent who regarded the average fantastic and extravagant opera as an invention of hell, opera diabolica. When Hindle arrived, the lyric theater was making history guided by the composer Reinhard Kaiser. Under Kaiser's management, Hamburg became a home of opera in the German tradition. Some of these German operas were coarse and in atrocious taste. Hugo Leichendritt tells, for instance, of a work called Stürzebecker und Gürge Michaelis, music by Kaiser, a story about piracy on the high seas, with executions and massacres, in which bladders filled with sow blood and concealed under the costumes of the actors would be perforated in such a manner that the appalled spectators were spattered with a gory shower, often resulting in a stampede. Kaiser, though a person of unstable character and extreme presumptuousness, had indisputable genius. 
He was not yet thirty when Handel came to Hamburg, and under him that city experienced its golden age of opera. To be sure, the weakest feature of the Hamburg opera was the singing. For a long time the institution had no professional singers. The roles were taken by students, shoemakers, tailors, fruiterers, and girls of little talent and less virtue, while ordinarily artisans found it more convenient to take female parts. A gifted Kapellmeister named Cousseur, who had been a pupil of Lully in Paris, introduced important reforms, and when Handel in 1703 arrived, the moment was, in truth, a psychological one. He was rich in power and strong in will, wrote the 22-year-old Johann Madison, the first acquaintance he was to make in Hamburg. Roland pictures Handel as having an ample forehead, a vigorous mouth, a full chin, and a head covered with a beretta, rather after the manner of Wagner, of whom throughout his life Handel reminds one in some amazing traits of character and genius. Under Kaiser, the adventurous newcomer soon found employment as a second violin in the opera orchestra. His particular intimate was Mattison, a musician of many gifts and uncommon versatility, who united in himself literary talents, a critical flair, and a highly volatile temperament. It was he who helped Handel find pupils and who guided him into the town's important musical circles so that before long Handel had access to the organ lofts of Hamburg's churches and opportunities to compose works for ecclesiastical purposes. Mattheson, incidentally, was a linguist and spoke perfect English, and it was through him that Handel was to enter for the first time into negotiations with what was to become his second country. It was not long, however, before the temperament and idiosyncrasies of the two brought them into collision. Madison criticized the music of his friend, perhaps not entirely without reason, complained that Handel was not the most perfect of melodists, and that he often wrote at too great length. If these opinions may have nettled the younger man, they were not wholly lost on him, as time was to show. In the early months of their friendship, Handel and Madison went to Lübeck to listen to the playing of the renowned Danish organist Dietrich Buxtehude, whose celebrated Abendmusiken at the Marienkirche were likewise a magnet which drew Bach away from his duties in Arnstadt. The young men were deeply stirred by the music of the venerable master, and Handel stored away in his incredible retentive memory ideas which were to fertilize his imagination in later years. The two youths actually competed for the post of organist, and might, like Bach, have won it, but for the provision that whoever succeeded a retiring organist in Lübeck had to marry the daughter, or widow, of his predecessor. In this case, the daughter seems to have been more than usually undesirable, and like their famous contemporary, the excursionists from Hamburg turned their backs on Lübeck. Presently the friendship was imperiled once more, this time with what might have been disastrous results. In October 1704, an opera, Cleopatra, which Madison had composed to a text by a certain Friedrich Feustkling, was produced with the composer in the part of Mark Antony and Handel at the harpsichord. The piece won a success, but on a later occasion 
Mattison, Antony being dead, hastened into the orchestra and tried to push Handel from the instrument. A quarrel flared up immediately, which seems to have broken up the performance and have lasted half an hour. In the end, the throng repaired to the Gens Market, outside the theatre, the pair drew swords and set upon one another. Almost at once the combat came to an end, Madison's blade splintering against a metal button on Hendel's coat. The duel might have ended very badly for us both, if by God's mercy my sword had not broken, the young firebrand was to write later. The reconciliation was not immediate, but when it did come about, the two dined together, then betook themselves to the theatre to a rehearsal of Handel's first opera, Almira. The representation on January 8, 1705, was an instant triumph for its composer. The Hamburgers were completely captivated by the freshness and manifest genius which the score exhibited. Madison had sung the tenor part, but does not seem to have been overjoyed by his friend's spectacular success. Handel was spurred by his fortunate operatic debut to embark on a second work. The fact that Elmira had been sung partly in Italian and partly in German did not keep it from obtaining twenty performances at the outset. Handel made the mistake of interrupting its run because he believed that in his next opera, Nero, or Love Obtained Through Blood and Murder, he had written something better. Madison sang the part of Nero, but the opera died after only three hearings. To aggravate matters, the Kaiser regime, now largely discredited, gave promise of putting an end to the Hamburg opera and Handel began to see himself enmeshed in the catastrophe of the wreck, a victim of elaborate jealousies and intrigues. In 1704 he had made the acquaintance of an Italian prince, Giovanni Gaston del Medici, an adventurer and a notorious profligate, whose father was Grand Duke of Tuscany. He was astonished that Handel seemed so little interested in Italian music, including some specimens he set before him. Handel insisted that angels would be necessary to sing them if such stuff were to sound even agreeable. At this time his ambition was to create a German style independent of foreign influences. And for Kaiser's successor, Sobre, Handel turned out a new opera, Florendo und Daphne, which, like Wagner's Rienzi, proved to be so long that the composer caused it to be given in two parts, for fear, he admitted, that the music might tire the hearers. Then, without taking leave of Madison or any of his friends, he accepted the prince's invitation and went to Italy. More or less mystery surrounds Handel's arrival in Italy, though the time was not exactly propitious, what with the war of the Spanish succession in full blast, and funds in the wanderer's pocket fairly low. But the composer did not tarry in Florence, his first stop for long, and early in 1707 went to Rome. From the operatic standpoint, the Eternal City had nothing to interest him. Pope Innocent III, ten years previously, deciding that the opera house was immoral, had closed it. 
Then, when things promised to improve a bit for musicians, a devastating earthquake renewed the religious qualms of the people, so that during the whole of Handel's Italian sojourn, Rome had not a single performance of opera. However, there was abundant church and chamber music, which spurred him to emulation. To the Easter festivities of April 1707 he contributed a Dixit Dominus, and a few months later he wrote a Laudate Pueri and other Latin psalms. But more important for his future were the excellent connections he made. Letters of recommendation from the Medici prince opened the Roman salons to him, and in such aristocratic circles his virtuosity on the keyboard seems to have gained him more fame than even his compositions. The famous Saxon, Il Sassone Famoso, as Handel was called among the Romans, even as early as the summer of 1707, was the wonder of musical soirees, and he was making inestimable artistic friendships. When we note that among those with whom he was brought into contact at one time or another in Rome included the Scarlattis, father and son, Arcangelo Corelli, Bernardo Paschini, Benedetto Marcello, to mention only a few, we can judge to what grandly fertilizing inspirations Handel was exposed. We must mention in passing Cardinals Pamphili and Ottobone, as well as the Marquis Ruspoli, who yielded to nobody in his enthusiasm for Handel's gifts. All these men belonged to a coterie called the Arcadians, which united the nobility and the artists in a spiritual fraternity, not only the most illustrious artists and aristocrats of Italy, but further included four popes and members of foreign royalty. The Arcadians held weekly meetings at the palace of Cardinal Ottoboni, where poetic and musical improvisations were given. It was for the concerts in the Ottoboni home that Handel composed his two Roman oratorios, The Resurrection and The Triumph of Time and Truth, which approximate operas, and the second of which was to undergo several transformations during his career. In the Ottoboni Palace later took place that celebrated contest between Handel and the incomparable Domenico Scarlatti, which was adjudged a draw. The heartwarming friendship between the two masters was to endure for years. It is by no means out of the question that in the unoperatic atmosphere of Rome, Handel nevertheless began to compose the first of his Italian operas, Rodrigo, which was heard for the first time only when he returned to Florence in the autumn of 1707. End of Part 1